I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Now, in a moment, we're going to be hearing from Elizabeth day about her new novel Magpie and about her wildly successful podcast How to Fail. We had an excellent conversation which I know you're really going to enjoy. We got engaged and married during a global pandemic and obviously there are restrictions as to what you can do but actually for us having a much smaller ceremony was it worked so well and it was so much more romantic as a result and I now totally get the point of elopements I really do it's just so much less stress and it's really special but before we get to Elizabeth uh, I just want to talk about a few stories of the week it's been a big week for Irish women writing well it was Sally Rooney Day with the launch of her third novel Beautiful World Where Are You that was last Tuesday there was a pop-up shop in England there was Bookshops opening early to celebrate and mark the the book. But as Rooney said in an interview that I did with her in the Irish Times, her success, her phenomenal success, is actually helping to raise awareness of the many incredible women writing in Ireland at the moment. So that is a fantastic offshoot of her kind of literary superstardom. And the other thing that strikes me about Rooney's success is, isn't it amazing that someone who's writing about things like capitalism, socialism, uh, something called late Bronze Age collapse. She's writing about, uh, you know, really interesting theories about art and beauty in the world, a lot of intellectual ideas and thoughts, as well as all that love and friendship and sex, of course. But someone who's writing so intellectually has broken through the mainstream. And I suppose Sally Rooney is kind of the antithesis of the dumbing down that we keep hearing about. I mean, Her stuff is elevating us, if anything. I personally always feel more intelligent and knowledgeable after reading her books. So that is my hot Sally Rooney take for the week. It's compulsory to have one at the moment, and that is mine. Sally Rooney makes us smarter, and that can only be a good thing. Happy publication week to the incredible Sally Rooney. Uh, Mayo might win the uh, All-Ireland on Saturday, and Sally Rooney is from Mayo. And also another good news story is the fact that the new Miss Ireland is for the first time in the history of that competition, which has been running since 1947. The new Miss Ireland is Pamela Uba, a black woman. And that's the first time that a black woman has been crowned Miss Ireland. She's a 26 year old medical scientist. And I spoke to her during the week and she's fantastic. She's a part time model who worked on the front line during the pandemic And she came to Ireland as an asylum seeker from Johannesburg in South Africa when she was seven. And she told me about her life growing up in the direct provision system in Ballyhonas and how she's now a very proud Irish citizen who cried when she got her Irish passport earlier this year. And she, as well as talking about some of the racism that she has experienced, which is sort of inevitable, she also talked about the huge support of community in Ballyhonas and Galway. So another 
wonderful Mayo story. So Mayo, Miss Ireland, Sally Rooney is from Mayo and then possibly Mayo are going to win the All-Ireland on Saturday. It's a an amazing treble if it happens. <laughs> and something less um, celebratory and more depressing is the fact that uh, the abortion situation in Texas, and you'll have all read about it. The United Nations human rights monitors have strongly condemned the state of Texas for its new anti-abortion law, which they say violates international law by denying women control over their own bodies and endangering their lives. Melissa Upretti, in damning remarks to The Guardian, uh, she's the chair of the UN's working group on discrimination against women and girls. She criticised the new Texas law SB8 as structural sex and gender based discrimination at its worst. She warned that the legislation which bans abortion at about six weeks could force abortion providers underground and drive women to seek unsafe procedures that could prove fatal. Uh, she said this new law will make abortion unsafe and deadly and create a whole new set of risks for women and girls, it's profoundly discriminatory and violates a number of rights guaranteed under international law. And Catelyn Moran wrote a furious 2000 words about this subject. And she said, forcing women to be mothers is no good for them or their children. She said, what we're talking about isn't a right to abortion, but the now legal ability for Texas to enforce motherhood. Texan women are now compelled to become Mothers And far from being legislation that really cares about the lives of babies or makes a better, happier or more moral and stable society, Moran wrote that it's a craven, vicious law that punishes women simply for being fertile and impregnable. And she said that the controversial law is in its lifelong impact a piece of non-choice as barbaric as child marriage or sex trafficking, one that seeks to utterly control women's futures, bodies, minds and lives. And we'll watch that um, with interest. And it's just very disturbing. And again, the thing we say over and over on this podcast is we just can't be complacent about the rights that we earn because there are people who are desperate to take them away from women and girls. And it's very depressing. But in better news, our amazing Paralympic athletes returned home with their medals and with all their incredible achievements from the Tokyo Paralympics. Well done to all of them, including 26-year-old Dubliner Ellen Keane from Clontarf down the road from me here. She won gold in the 100-metre breaststroke and she was so excited and said she's just looking forward to chilling out and being a normal person for a few weeks before she gets back into the pool. Another Paralympic swimmer, Nicole Turner, got a silver medal in the 50-metre butterfly and she was delighted to be reunited with her family. And then the tandem cyclists, Katie George Dunleavy and Eve McChrystal, cycled their way into the history books, taking two gold medals and a silver in their races at the Games. So well done, all of them. And the last thing I want to mention before we get on to Elizabeth Day is a really important radio documentary that's happening on Saturday at 1pm. Katie Hannan has looked at and talked to women who've suffered discrimination in the defence forces and uh, not just discrimination, women who have been sexually harassed or sexually assaulted. And these are incredible women. It's taken a lot for them to put their stories out there and their call for acknowledgement, apology and accountability is going to be all contained in Katie Hannan's documentary on them. So it's on on Saturday on RTE Radio 1. Do try and give it a listen it's something that we don't hear about and 
these women, as I said, putting their stories out there, uh, you know, it's it's always at great cost to themselves. So I'd love if people could listen to that and support it. Documentary by Katie Hannon on Women in the Defence Forces at 1pm on Saturday. Now, today's episode is a conversation with Elizabeth Day, who is an English novelist, journalist and broadcaster. She was a features writer for The Observer from 2007 to 2016. And she's also the host of the podcast How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, where she talks to well-known people about what they have learned from those times in their lives when they have failed at something. So she does something really incredible, which is you know, mine wonderful insights and wisdoms and learnings from the worst times in a way in people's lives. Her new book is a novel called Magpie and it's a gripping psychological thriller which takes in many of the themes that have affected Day throughout her life. I think you're really going to enjoy this. I know I did and she's just wonderful. Here's my chat with the fantastic Elizabeth Day. Elizabeth Day, um, anyone who hears your lovely accent will never believe this, but essentially you are a dairy girl. Discuss and tell us all about it. <laughs> I am dairy, not born, but dairy bred. Um, I was born in the UK, but when I was four, my dad, who is a surgeon, um, he's retired now, he got a job in Atlegalvin Hospital in Derry. And there was a Northern Irish link because my grandmother was uh, born and spent her childhood in Belfast. And we moved over there in 1982. And then my parents were there for the next 22 years. But as you can hear, (laughs) and as you've alluded to, I never picked up the accent and I don't know why. But the easiest way of understanding who I am is to watch Derry Girls, which is the most brilliant thing ever on television. And I am the weird English cousin, but a female version of James. Like that was my experience. That is such a great description. Like we can totally place you now, Elizabeth. This is fantastic. The English one who's really annoying and keeps talking in this really weird accent. Very funny. Exactly. And sounds more geeky than they actually are because they've got this weird accent. And oh, I love that programme. So so tell me then, um, being the, the sort of English person in Derry and then in Belfast, you lived it as well. A lot of writers are kind of observers, I find, and people who don't necessarily fit in or felt they didn't fit in. How much do you think that informed the fact that you end up writing and and what you do in the podcast as well? Hugely. I mean, I, I, I was thinking about that a lot over the last kind of 10 years or so, because I, in so many respects, had an incredibly privileged upbringing in that I existed in a house that was filled with books and I was never laughed at for wanting to write and I went to great schools and I am white so that already puts me into an incredibly privileged position and yet I never felt that I fitted in even though the north of Ireland was my home I never sounded like I was from there and people always treated me as an outsider and also it was a very specific political time when there were bombs going off and there were military checkpoints and in some quarters to speak with an English accent marked you out as an unwanted occupier. Mm. And there were always assumptions made about me and that I must be from a military family, which I wasn't. And so there was always quite a lot of excavation to do in any conversation I had. I was sort of assessing what someone else might be thinking of me and how to tune what I was saying into their energy accordingly. And after a while that got quite exhausting. And so I just started to listen much more than I talked. And that absolutely 
made me into an observer, an interviewer probably, and someone who has perpetually been obsessed with the importance of the things that are left unsaid, as well as the things that we're actually saying. So now looking back, I'm so grateful for that experience, although bits of it were hard at the time. The other thing that I'm really grateful for is that Ireland has such an extraordinary culture of writers and taking writers seriously and being really respectful towards them. And I felt when I published my first novel, and by then I was living in London, and I went back to Ireland to do some publicity for it, I felt like I was coming home. I was I was suddenly welcomed and claimed because I was a writer. And there's something so beautiful about that, like almost to find your home in adulthood. Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really interesting how you put that. And I think it informs both your podcast and your writing and that listening and that wanting. I love what you said about uh, wanting to know about the things that are left unsaid, because that's always where the fascinating stuff is. So you went to Cambridge and I have to sort of big you up here and say you got a double first from Cambridge, which I I don't know if we've had someone who's had a double first from Cambridge on the podcast. (laughs) So can you tell us? It's a bit nauseating, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about Cambridge and all of that. Uh, I mean, no one is as surprised as I am by that. And and I, I have to say... I'm really proud of it because I was it was so unexpected that to me anyway that I was going to get that degree and I think what that shows is that again going back to privilege how lucky was I to be in a situation I ended up going to a boarding school in England I got a scholarship there because of my accent it felt like I fitted in I grew in confidence and I got into Cambridge and I got to study a subject that I absolutely love and feel so passionate about which was history and I got to spend 3 years talking to like unbelievably intelligent people about history and the periods of history that fascinated me and got to hang out in libraries and live in amazing buildings. And I think for me, that's a lesson in cultivating passion. I I felt really passionate about what I was doing and I was given the space to indulge that for three years and lent into that and then couldn't quite believe that I got the results that I did. And I still have stress dreams about sitting my finals. I had one the other day. It must be because the novel's just come out. I had one the other day where I was like, oh my God, I was in the middle of this dream and I found myself at an exam desk. I was like, I have totally forgotten to revise the 19th century. (laughs) (laughs) So it was clearly like, there's something about it that clearly is like, it's a big subconscious part of my psyche, that whole experience. But to answer your question more directly, I had a really great time at university. I know that wasn't everyone's experience. My best friend who I met there didn't have a great time. And I think I was just lucky that I always had my writing alongside that. So I did student journalism while I was there. Um, And yeah, loved the holidays too. Nice long holidays. (laughs) Still miss those. Well, I mean, you you mentioned sort of a lot of privilege and, uh, you know, great things happening to you. But like in every life, there's light and shade and and dark things. And we're going to get to a bit of that later on. But I wanted to talk to you and I suppose it's part of it. I want to talk to you about how to fail because it's it's like, you know, in a time when it seems like everyone has a podcast, which is is one way of looking at it. Not everyone has really successful podcasts and it really is usually successful. Millions of people listen to it and it's an idea that's absolutely brilliant in its simplicity in one way. Can you tell us a little bit about coming up with How to Fail and what led to it? Sure. It came out of my own failures and I always think it's really important to situate the podcast in that way because I didn't come at podcasting thinking, 
I'm going to develop a hit podcast and I'm going to hit upon an idea. Genuinely, it was my own curiosity and my own need to feel connected to other people through their own failures. And it came out of a very personal place in my life. So my 30s have been a decade of intense transition where professionally speaking, it seemed as though I were quote unquote successful in that I had a steady job as a feature writer on a Sunday newspaper and I had starting I started writing novels. But personally speaking, things hadn't gone according to plan at all. I'd got married to the wrong person. I was divorced at 35. Um, I'd gone through unsuccessful fertility treatments, rounds of IVF that hadn't worked. I'd had the first of what would become three miscarriages. And in my head, when I was a child growing up, I realise now I had quite a heteronormative view of the world and it was informed by 1980s rom-coms. And I was like, I'm going to get married and I'm going to meet the love of my life and it's all going to happen at this particular point and then I'll have children and I'll do that at the same time as all of my friends are doing it. And none of that happened. And after my divorce, it took me a while to start dating again. And when I did start dating again, I felt I'm making different decisions now. So I've learned from that salutary experience and I'm in a healthier relationship. And it was when that relationship ended, totally out of the blue from my perspective, in a really brutal way, three weeks before my 39th birthday. That was a really emotionally plundering part of my life where I suddenly thought, I was, I was like, oh my God, I've got to start again. And I feel so alone and I don't have any of those things. I don't have children. And now my biological clock is ticking. Where do I go next? And that's when I started thinking about failure. And that's when I started listening to podcasts because I was like looking for other people to tell me how to survive almost. Mm -hmm. And it was those things coming together. And I was like, I realized that actually for every time I'd failed in my life, I'd also survived it. And it had also taught me something that was so worth knowing. And it had brought me into a place in life where I was able to kind of experiment and launch a podcast without knowing what I was doing. And because I'd been spending time as a Sunday newspaper journalist, I'd got very used to doing interviews with celebrities about all the wonderful things that they were doing, like the film that they were promoting, the fantastic director they worked with, the skincare range they were launching. <laughs> and it was just a constant story of kind of cultivated success. And I was yearning for like a proper human connection through vulnerability and admission of things going wrong. And that's where the idea came from. And I think I got into podcasts at just the right time when they'd established themselves, they'd been the hits like Serial, but it wasn't completely saturated in the way that it is now. And because I didn't really know what I was doing, I actually think that that naivety helped the idea be as simple as it is and as straightforward as it is. So it's very easy to convey what it's about quite quickly. And I had no idea that it would strike such a chord, but it was a real gift for me that it did because it's been a great journey of understanding for me as well. Yeah. I mean, you've had some amazing people on it, you know, Lily Allen and Alistair Campbell and all sorts of mm -hmm. people. Who is your favourite that you've had on talking about their failures? Um, well, recently I got one of my dream guests. So when I launched the podcast, one of my dream guests on that list was Chimamanda and Gozi Adichie. And she came on recently. I was just like, 
such a fangirl. <laughs> I had to kind of, it's almost like I had to do my fangirling before I started recording, just like get it out of my system. Um, and she gave the most vulnerable, poignant interview about the horror of grief. She'd lost both of her parents in quick succession. And she was honest enough and brave enough to talk about that. So that was a real honour. And I also, again, one of my heroes, Gloria Steinem, she came on um, actually during lockdown. And that was that was one of those rare experiences where meeting your hero really does live up and exceed all your expectations. Yeah. And, and then the final one I'd say is um, a man called Mo Gaudat, who was not a household name when we met, but he is a former chief business officer at Google X who developed an algorithm for happiness. And he's such a humane, beautiful, wise man. And he spoke a lot about grief in his life. He lost his son tragically at the age of 21. And so many people responded to that. And I know that so many people have been helped by what he said. So that's got a very special place in my heart as well. Well, I'm going to mention Marion Keys because that's one of the <gasps> ones I listened to recently. And I loved it. I mean, it's two of you together was just perfection, really. She's amazing. And I, I did say this recently to a lovely Irish journalist and I meant it. And she hilariously was like, Elizabeth Day is such a good flirt, which I was, I was really flattered because I was saying the Irish guests are always incredible. They're always like top tier. And I think it is partly because of what we touched on, that culture of storytelling or they're just wonderful. And Marion Keys was phenomenal. And we had a really honest conversation about children and not being able to have them and I remember her saying to me that it took her years to come to terms with it like the grief was a slow motion grief and I found that really reassuring because I think a lot of women put pressure on themselves to feel okay about loss straight away and it made me realize that coming to terms with a failure or a grief can be a slower process and that's okay yeah um, you did mention a best friend. Were you talking about Phoebe Waller Bridge at that point, or is there something? Is there? Have you got? Are you one of these people with a few best friends? No, that I I don't trust those people. <laughs> I've got one best friend. She's called Emma. Okay, so it's not Phoebe. Phoebe is what I do is I say one of my closest. Like Phoebe right. is definitely one of my top five. Like, okay. No, I'm glad um, we clarified that. Yes, <laughs> she's obviously um, an incredible talent as well, and um, as you are as well. Um, and I just want to remind listeners, and some will know already, that the um, the miscarriage scene in Fleabag was inspired by one of your miscarriages. Yeah. How? I mean, I'm presuming you must have with your very one of your closest friends Phoebe had had lots of conversations about that before she put that in why did you feel it was okay to sort of let that be you know in in such a brilliant well it's a brilliant program so I'm not surprised but what was that process like uh talking to Phoebe about it well we have conversations all the time about everything as friends do and so she knew about it was actually my first miscarriage and I met her for the first time shortly after that happened. So it was in uh, November 2014. And we found ourselves in this weird conference in Las Vegas together. And I basically had identified her as the person that I most wanted to be friends with. Um, And at that stage, she'd done Fleabag as a one-woman show in Edinburgh. And all of her vast global success was yet to come. But uh, there's something so special about Phoebe when you meet her. She is she's just incredible and she's got wild charisma 
incredible intelligence, but is also so kind and generous and you just want to be around her. So I was like, you are going to be my friend. I love <laughs> so, that. I love yeah. that single mindedness. When you when you see a good person, it's like, yes, yeah. I've done that a couple of times in my life. and I love it. Yes. I've no I, shame. Yeah. I've no shame. Me about neither. That. But I think we only get these opportunities quite rarely, especially in adulthood. So I was like, I launched... <laughs> Uh, an aggressive attack. <laughs> anyway, um, she was susceptible to it, and yeah. since then we've just we've um, we've always had really deep and funny conversations. So she knew about that, and then what happened was in the run up to Fleabag season two airing, she called me out of the blue one day. She's like, Elizabeth, I'm so sorry, but I think I've done this thing where I think I've taken something you told me, and I think I might have put it in the script. And she told me about it. And I had started having my miscarriage when I was having, it was actually brunch with a friend in a restaurant and I had gone to the toilet and I had realised what was happening and I didn't want to impose that on my friend or on the brunch. And so I like tried to just like carry on with the social situation. And there was something so agonising about that, about telling Phoebe that. It was like, I didn't want to place any demands on someone else, even when it was. As you see now in the opening scene of Fleabag season two, it's just so incredible. Even though it's life and death, that's literally happening to you. And as a woman, you're like, oh no, don't worry about me, I'll be fine. Um, and anyway, she said, I think I've used it. And I, my immediate response was like, brilliant, because I trust Phoebe completely. And I know that she's a genius. And I knew that whatever she did with it, it would bring meaning to something that might otherwise have stayed traumatically meaningless. And so it was, I thought it was a, a real act of generosity on her part. And then when I went to a screening of that episode, it was pr profoundly moving. And I know that Fleabag has helped so many women and men who've been through it. So that's how it happened. Yeah, well, thank you for telling us about that. And I think you're right. There's so much more talk now about pregnancy loss in, in a much more real and open way. And I think you've been part of that and, and Phoebe has. And, you know, it can only be a good thing because I think for so long people just felt like the failure thing, like you say, and that you just didn't want to burden anyone with, with it. It's a hidden thing. It used to be anyway. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there was so much, like wrongly, there was so much shame attached to it. Because you do feel, even though you shouldn't, a lot of people feel like failures as mothers before they become mothers, before they have the chance. They sort of feel like, oh, well, I did something wrong or I'm not good enough or there's something not working and that's why it's happening to me. And the more that women talk about it, the more that we realise it's actually a shared experience to such a vast degree and I wish it weren't. But it's also an experience which does you are allowed to grieve it because you're it's you are grieving the life that you started believing in at the moment that you felt you were pregnant you're grieving the loss of that and the loss of that future and it took me a really long time to realize that and i'm really really glad and proud to be part of a generation of women who are speaking out more about it. Well, I want to just ask you one more thing about uh, how to fail before we go on to magpie your incredible new novel. It's called How to Fail, but yet you've been a rip-roaring success. So how do you marry these two things, Elizabeth Day? It's shocking. I know it is. It's the ultimate irony. I mean, never let it be said that the universe doesn't have a sense of humour. It is hilarious. Um, I think that my answer to that is I've always seen this podcast and the books that I've written as a result of it as a way of learning from failure. 
So failure is going to happen to us all. And that's a fact of life. The only thing that we can control is our response to it to varying degrees. I'm not lumping all failures in together because there are different gradations of failures and different people are given more opportunities to fail than others. But generally speaking, we choose how to respond to it and that builds our character. So in choosing to respond to failure in a specific way that helps us evolve as individuals, that for me is a form of success. So I like to think that actually I'm living by my core brand values. <laughs> I love it. Okay, that's, that's well answered. Um, one more thing about failure. I'm going to read you a quote. You have to guess who said it, okay? Okay. One of the biggest drivers of success, perhaps paradoxically, is being comfortable with failure. Most of us fail at some point and it's okay if you do. If you've learned something and worked with some great people, it's still incredibly valuable. The key thing is to make sure you know what you're learning and enjoy the journey. Okay, a great quote. Um, is it okay? I've got a couple of ideas. Have you? I don't think it's Brené Brown. No, but I'm going to put no. Is it a tech guy? Is yes. it like a Mark Zuckerberg? No, it it's a Zuckerberg? tech guy no, called Bill Justin Gates. Bassini. Oh, is it Justin Bassini? Oh my gosh, that's amazing! <laughs> that is the best thing that has ever happened to me in an interview. <laughs> that's your husband. You are very, very clever. That's Justin. Oh, well done him. He's very wise. It's on his website or it's in some chat he did with some some blog somewhere. Well, I like to think I have a bit of an influence on him, but I hadn't realised it was that good. You have really infiltrated his mind. He's out there. He's preaching the philosophy for you. He's like an evangelist on my behalf. He is. And he looks like a very handsome, lovely chap in his picture, I have to say. (laughs) He is. I mean, I am biased, but I think so. When when did you get married? We got married. So actually, we had a wedding at the end of April, 29th of April. But we had got married secretly. We'd signed the documents in the middle of like in between lockdowns in December 2020. Wait, I've lost all sense of time during the pandemic. Yeah, (laughs) December 2020. Um, and both of those things were incredibly special. And and I feel it's interesting actually getting married during a we got engaged and married during a global pandemic. And obviously there are restrictions to as to what you can do. But actually for us, having a much smaller ceremony was it worked so well and it was so much more romantic as a result. And I now totally get the point of elopements. I really do. It's just so much less stress and it's really special. I think a lot of people have realised that. I think there's a lot of big weddings that were cancelled that won't be happening in the way that they did, even when you can, because some people will realise I actually don't want what I thought I wanted, you know. Exactly. Exactly. And you met him on a dating app. Is that right? I'm always fascinated by these stories. Yes, we met on Hinge. Okay, why is Hinge a good one? Is Hinge a good one? Well, it was when I used it, but apparently it's gone massively off the boil. And I think it happens with apps. It's like there's always the kind of new app that only a few people have heard of. And if you get on it at the right time, you get the cream of the crop. And I think, again, I'm biased, but I think that's what happened when I met Justin. He had only just joined it. I had only just joined it. We were the first, we connected with each other. It was our first and only connection on Hinge. The first and only date I went on and that was it. But I had been through a whole cycle of inferior apps up to that point. And I think what happens is everyone flocks to the new app. Then it becomes full of, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes. Okay. Then it becomes full of like fuck boys <laughs> and, and fuck girls, I guess as well. And um, then it just becomes a sort of hookup app. 
And then it goes through this whole life cycle. So I I think Hinge might be in, in peril now. And I think if I was single, I'd be on the lookout for the new one that people will have heard about in LA, but not here yet. That is excellent advice. I hope yeah. everyone who's, who's on that app situation will take that in. Um, let's talk about Magpie. I'm just in the last sort of... Uh, 20, 30 pages, and I'm really enjoying it so much. It's a psychological thriller about motherhood, I suppose, essentially. Tell us a bit about the inspiration for it, because it does kind of, it brings together a lot of things that you talk about on your podcast and a lot of things Mm. that you've been through yourself in in your life. So where did the the kernel of the idea come from? Yeah, so I'm one of those authors, I, I don't mind at all when I'm asked how much of it is autobiographical, because I do feel that all of my fiction is informed by all of my lived experience. And Magpie deals with themes of fertility and motherhood and obsession and what happens when you can't easily become a mother and what that means, not only for you, but the knock on impact on everyone around you. And I wanted to explore that because of what I'd been through and also because of how I saw it could have tipped me into all of those very dark areas if I'd allowed it to. Because I think there's also a lot of rage and jealousy attached to that. When you're going through fertility procedures and you see mothers with toddlers complaining about how difficult it is and how little sleep they have and taking to Instagram to share their stretch marks. And whilst I have a lot of sympathy with that, you have to be in the right frame of mind to accept it as well, if you're going through something that is personally traumatic, which is about you not being able to be a mother. So I wanted to look at all of that and all of what happens when we as women compare ourselves, we compare our neurotic insides with other people's outsides and we imagine that they have the perfect life. So I really wanted to dig into what the perfect life, quote unquote, actually meant, which I think is really a very similar theme to the podcast. <laughs> um, and the the kernel was, oh God, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it was actually a conversation with Phoebe where I had started a different novel and I'd started that novel before How to Fail, the podcast had launched. And actually when I returned to it, I realised that I'd explored a lot of the territory that I wanted to explore through the podcast, through my memoir, How to Fail. And so I wanted to do something new and I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I said to Phoebe, I was like, I just don't know what to write next. And she said, the only thing I can ever write about is what's going on in my life right now. Which sounds counterintuitive because obviously Phoebe herself has not fallen in love with a hot priest. <laughs> but um, Are you sure? She, well, who knows? She definitely not. <laughs> well, what, no, I don't. Well, I think I would know and I don't think she has. Um <laughs> But what was going on for her was that she was falling in love. And Fleabag season two is all about falling in love. And Magpie for me, it just unlocked something in me. Magpie for me was all about what I was obsessing over, which was I'm this age. Am I going to be a mother? How am I going to get there? What does it mean? And so that was the opening point. And then I looked at what structure would be interesting Mm. (laughs) and compelling and hopefully thrilling to read. And there is, as you know, a twist in the middle which hopefully flips your perception of the world that you think you're living in. But the book opens with Marissa, who is in her late 20s, who has had a pretty terrible time on the old dating apps, who has had quite a difficult childhood. And she finally meets a man, Jake, who seems to tick every single box she has. And they move in together quite quickly. And they start trying for a family together quite quickly. 
And you get the sense that maybe, maybe it's all going a bit too fast, but she really believes in it. And then they're forced, owing to financial circumstances, to take in a lodger. And this lodger is called Kate. And she seems quite oddly intrusive and far too interested in their relationship dynamics. And um, Marissa starts being very suspicious of her. And it's about what happens next. I'm telling you, I mean, it's a fantastic read in that way. And actually, as you're describing it, I really must say how skillfully it's done because in it, in other hands, it wouldn't have worked. It might have been clunky. It would have been too strange. And you do it so well. And that is really, really clever, I think. Thank you so um, and we much. can't, we don't want to reveal too much, obviously. Yeah. But I would like to talk about mental illness, which features in it. And we don't necessarily have to say where that comes in. Yeah. But one of the things I really found, again, I admire so much. Um, my father was schizophrenic and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot and watching other stories of it and things like that. I really have to say you did all that very, very well. And I wondered about how much research went into that or how did you manage to do it? Because it's a delicate subject. You know, it's a really tricky subject. First of all, thank you so much for saying that, because to hear from you and knowing that you've had firsthand experience and that means so much to me. It really does. And I really wanted to respect mental health conditions because for me, they aren't really, it's illness, but it's not an illness that detaches you from your humanity. It is part of the messy complexity of being human. So for me, it's just the human condition. And therefore I want to pay respect to that and and, and be as um, cognizant of all the subtleties as I can be and be on a character's side with it as well. Because we're all trying to just navigate this confusion of life. Yeah. And um, yes, I did do research into it. I also have a very good friend who has written very movingly about the experience of schizophrenia in his family, Satnam Sangira. I don't know if you've yeah. read his work, but he's an incredible advocate and just a really wonderful person to listen to about myriad things. And um, so I was, I was just aware of not writing into cliche (laughs) and um, not making it other, like not othering it. And then, and also my dad is an invaluable resource. So I mentioned he's a surgeon and he's also just someone who does a lot of kind of wider reading in all sorts of kind of medical conditions. And he's always my first port of call when I'm like, what dosage of this and what kind of drug would I need for this situation? And actually asking him that and then looking into what the drugs do, that was also a really helpful way of sort of unlocking it. And then... It's not just reading kind of case studies on Google. It's also reading fiction for me. Like Fiction really unlocks a lot of emotional truth. And I think when mental health and mental illness is done well in fiction, it, it just it just is so it just hits the right kind of nerve. I don't know if you've read Sorrow and Bliss. No, you, I the haven't. Meg Mason book. You see, that I think is the best novel I've read all year. And it's being touted as a book about mental illness and I didn't get that when I read it I was like this is an extraordinary book about what it is to be human and then everyone was like it's just an amazing and it is and I now realize that it is that as well but I think that was the key for me was just maintaining everyone's dignity and humanity 
Yeah, well, I think you, I really have to say, I think you did it really well. And um, the reason I've been thinking about it a lot is because my mum, uh, actually, she features on this podcast sometimes. She's in our book club. She's actually written a memoir called Open Hearted. And mm. she's writing about the story of her relationship with my father. And um, it's it's just really interesting to see back in the 70s, say in Ireland anyway, and I'm sure it was the same in England too, how people were... Um, medicated or treated like he would have had electric shock treatment and all of that kind of mm. thing whereas in your novel it's great actually I find it quite um, comforting a little bit to see that there is actually much better drugs now and things yeah. to, to treat people and that there's more understanding of it as, a, as an illness and also that sort of thing Absolutely and it really ties into what we were talking about in terms of miscarriage and fertility it is incredible that the conversation about mental health has opened up to such a vast degree where it feels like we are really attacking the stigma and shame around things that shouldn't ever have carried that. And that's wonderful. I don't know what you think about this. I also think that it's such a broad umbrella term and it can encompass so many different things so that you've got anxiety at one end, which when I was growing up was like, you worry too much. You're a bit of a worrier. (laughs) That's what I was always told. Like, how great would it have been for me to have had the language of anxiety to express how I was feeling? And that's one element. And then at the other end, you've got things like schizophrenia, which, which don't get as much airplay, which do still seem a bit scary in the way that they shouldn't, which are still stereotyped in badly written soap operas, which are massively underfunded. And I'm very passionate about understanding the distinctions and giving equal airplay to all of them because it's so important for people like your mother and your father and you Mm. that things are treated properly and funded properly. Yeah, I I agree with you because I think think there's a lot of talk about, you know, uh, the anxiety end of things and, and, you know, looking at mindfulness and all those, which are great and I think it's brilliant, but I think we're still not really there yet with those more extreme... Um, conditions yeah. that actually fundamentally change someone's behaviour, say, or really, uh, um, you know, bring up a lot of things that people can't understand that, or that look very strange and scary. That, like, I think mm. the more we talk about those things, that it's less scary and more something that we do kind of treat as a, as another illness instead of some other weird thing. I love what you said there about part of people's humanity and keeping that dignity mm. as well, because again, people can lose that um, part of themselves when they're seen just as a mad person, for want of a better expression exactly and I I think you know I've had some really good friends go through some really difficult things and um experience terrible illness and have to relearn how to be in the world and I always think of those people when for instance I'm standing in a checkout queue and maybe the woman in front is talking to herself or struggling to find the right change or doing something that seems obstreperous. And I always think, no, you just don't know. Like that could be a symptom of a battle that we know nothing about. And if having a more open conversation about these things leads to a moment of compassion in that situation, then that's an incredible job well done that, that we should keep on doing. Yeah. It's just to like have a, a degree of imaginative empathy about what other people might be carrying. Yeah. But I do, I think you've handled, like I say, I haven't quite quite finished the book, but I feel like you've handled that really well. And I, I did find all of that very moving. And like you say, that you had the characters, I feel like you had the characters back as well as, you know, all the characters backs, especially Thank maybe you. the one that was suffering the most with, with those issues. You wrote it, I think, if correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you had just suffered a, a miscarriage, perhaps your third one when you wrote the book. Is that right? Yes. So I had started Magpie 
before the first national lockdown in the UK. And I'd written about 15,000 words and it is a book of two halves. So I'd sort of done the kind of first half-ish. And then I fell into a spiral of despond as we all did. And I was like, well, oh my gosh, what I've written is rubbish and I can't possibly write anymore. And I shelved it and I, I simultaneously discovered that I was pregnant, which was completely unexpected and also wonderful, but quite shocking because it happened literally sort of two days after we'd gone into lockdown. And then my mind obviously became very preoccupied with that because of my previous experiences, as any woman listening will know who has suffered a miscarriage and who then goes on to get pregnant. You cannot have uncomplicated joy in your pregnancy because you're constantly, I at least my experience was, I was constantly anxious. Um, and so I just had to kind of, that took up a lot of my headspace, just managing that. And um, we went for a scan at seven weeks and saw a heartbeat. And so then you're told, well, that's an amazing sign and you're basically out of the woods. And so then I had a moment, you know, I had a week of sort of less anxiety. And then for whatever reason, we went back a week later and the heartbeat had stopped and it's devastating. There's no explanation. It is in that cliched term, just one of those things. And because it was lockdown, it was a medically managed miscarriage which meant I got sent back home and took drugs and it was really really horrendous uh, not to sugarcoat it I just cannot believe that women go through this all the time mm. um, and it was my third miscarriage and I think it was the one that was most difficult and I think it's because I had no way of distracting myself from it so my previous experiences, I'd been able then to like go out, take every single work assignment, have a glass of red wine with my friends over dinner, go on holiday. Couldn't do any of that. Had to sit with it. And actually looking back, I'm really grateful because I processed it in a way that I didn't think I had processed the other ones. And I processed a lot of grief and uh, I did a lot of therapy and it was sort of helpful actually looking back. And that's a long-winded way of saying after that experience and that pain and that sadness, something was unlocked in me and I felt I could finally return to Magpie and write all of the second half. Wow. And, and, and actually use all of that in the novel. And it was a form of genuine like therapeutic catharsis in a way. I don't think you should ever write for that reason, but if it's a bribe product, then so much the better. And I got into this flow of writing five to seven each evening. And it was a way, I think, of my building something in the space, in the kind of destructive space that had been left and to give something like that, like miscarriage, meaning. And so that's why I can say that I'm proud of Magpie um, because it exists and, and that's like enough. Wow, that's amazing. I think that's really incredible. And is it OK to ask you where you are with all of that now in terms of and I don't know why I'm putting air quotes over fertility journey, but yeah. that's what people <laughs> say. I feel like I have to put them up there. How are you feeling now about all of that stuff? Because you've been through and I know that so many people, so many women listening will be really hanging on your every word and understand exactly what you're mm. talking about, because it's so widespread and something that so many women uh, deal with and don't get to really share as much. And it's great that you're doing it. So where are you now with everything? Thank you for asking in such a sensitive way. I, I want to preface this by saying I know that there are women out there who are happily child free or if not 
immediately happily so. They have become so and at peace with it. I admire and respect them so, so much. And I'm not there yet. Um, I'm still on the path. <laughs> and I think the the answer to where I am is that I still want to be a mother. But I understand that motherhood takes many forms and that there are many options available to me and to us that I am in the process of exploring. And if that doesn't work out, I'm also aware that I will be fine. I will be great. I will have an amazing life. I do have an amazing life. And it's going to take me some time, as Marion Keyes said, to come to terms with that grief. So I, so at the same time as preserving my hope, I think I'm also actively engaged in coming face to face with my sadness. And some days that's a really difficult path to tread carefully enough because it's a really difficult balance to keep. And other days like today, it's completely fine because I've got, because I actually, I find talking about it really helpful. <laughs> um, and because my novel's out and I'm quite busy doing stuff around that. And so that's helpful because that makes me feel like I have real meaning and I have something to give. And then other days I feel really upset and sad about it. And I think it's okay to do that. And I think it, I really want people to hear that who might be going through it, that I also feel that. Um, and just recently, I know a lot of women had this experience as well. I had my second COVID vaccine and I was quite early on with my second jab because I think I had pneumonia in the past and I think that bumped me up the list. And um, there hadn't been a lot of people reporting any issues with their menstrual cycle. And my period was a week late and my period is never late. And I thought I was pregnant. And that is a total head fuck. When you feel pregnant and you're like, this never happened. The last time I'd had the period this late, I was pregnant. And then you're taking a pregnancy test and it's negative. And you're like, well, maybe that's, I just need to take it in the morning or the next day. And my hormones would have gone up. And I, that was a really difficult space to occupy. And that was the last time that I felt really sad about it. And so I just want to say, yeah. if anyone's going through it, I'm with you and I see you and I understand. Well, thank you for that. And both of your parents, I think, got COVID at one point as well. Yes, God, you're very, very well researched. I'm so they are fine. I'm going to do a hat tip to Jennifer there because she she gave me that note. Yeah, Um, my mother actually got COVID very early on, and it was really scary. And because my dad is a brilliant medical caregiver, he was able to look after her and knew exactly the right things to do, and was amazing. And then he had it in a much milder form, where he it was more. It didn't. It exhausted him and he had digestive things, but he wasn't like flattened by it. Um, but that was, that was, yes, that was rough. And But I know so many other people have had it so much worse. And my heart goes out to people who have lost loved ones through that. It's mm. been such a tough time. And I know, especially in Ireland, mm. you guys really, really went through it with the lockdowns. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I just think, I don't, I don't know if you agree, there's so much that's going to come out of this uh, that's, that we don't even know in terms of like sort of what we're talking about, mental health difficulties, people who are on their own, loneliness, yeah. you know, people who haven't weren't able to grieve properly with the people around them, all that kind of thing. It's kind of we're going to see it all ha- happening. I think we have to be really mindful of that in the next in the months and years ahead. I totally agree. I, I interviewed Raven Leilani, who wrote Luster a while back, and she had lost her dad to COVID. And one of the points that she made was it's so difficult when you're 
unique grief and your experience of life with your loved one is assimilated so that it's part of this huge collective grief where hundreds and thousands of people have died in the same way and there's not enough space almost for you to have your own grief. And I think that's something that will take years to come to terms with. That is such an interesting point because there is that thing when you lose somebody that, you know, this is something that you're going through, that you have your own private sort of, it was such a group um, thing, wasn't it? Everyone yeah. was having the thing. So it, it sort of undermines or minimizes or dilutes your exactly. experience somehow. Yeah. And you just kind of had to keep going because you're like, well, we're living through a global pandemic. So I just need to keep going, keep going. And I think also just school, school age children, how difficult that must be not having seen your friends and not having been in a classroom and not having sat exams. And oh, my goodness. God, I feel like I'm on a real downer now. Sorry. <laughs> well, well, let's lift it up a bit, Elizabeth. Okay. Let's okay. lift it up by talking about your last novel, The Party. Apparently it was optioned for TV. So is that where is that at now? Yes, so it's still very early stages, but it's been optioned by World Productions, who I love and adore because they make light Line of Duty. <laughs> oh my God, we love Line of Duty. We love Line of Duty, especially because the Irish love Adrian Dunbar, obviously, oh. he, he's a great man, um, filmed in Belfast. Anyway, yes. uh, they're an amazing production company. I feel so lucky. I had just the nicest Zoom call with them and they're really <laughs> on board. They're putting together a brilliant package but it's still very early days. I'm not adapting it myself, which I'm really happy about. <laughs> but they're kind of finding writers and uh, but they they have a real sense of what that novel's about and I'm really excited about seeing how it's interpreted for screen. Oh, that's very exciting. And then what are you working on at the moment? Are you into the next one? <laughs> not quite. I know what I'm going to write about <laughs> for the next one. It's a non-fiction book and it's going to be essays in friendship, really. Um, I think the pandemic has made us so grateful for our friends and also reassess some friendships that might have outgrown themselves. And so, oh, what? She's lifting a book. She's going I to... I am. Oh my I gosh, don't know if this book is going to called... be called... <laughs> Called, it's I have to say it because otherwise I'll feel bad. My friend Rosita has book? just written a book. What's it say? Oh, Comrades. A Lifetime of Essays friendship. of Friendships. Shut up, Rosita. Is it any good? It looks amazing. It's brilliant. <laughs> Do you know what? But you I know, know. That makes me happy. There is room in the world for lots of books about friendships because yes. they are so important. And we're making up for lost time because it's never had the attention that, it, that a romantic heteronormative relationship has so I am Rosita's comrade in what I'm about to write she and would I... be so happy because I know she listens to your podcast Aww. and Rosita Boland's comrades is out um at the end of September so everyone can read that and then we'll read yours great Elizabeth title. when it great comes title out. thank you anyway I haven't started writing it yet so so that all might change maybe I'll do use, enemies um, instead you can use Rosita's <laughs> as an aid memoir you know yes, just yes check in um but are you you're you're going to start that book and I suppose the podcast is is keeping going as well Yes, the podcast, we've just started season 12, so um, I've almost recorded all guests for that. That will definitely keep going um, because I love doing it and I love what it brings me and the amazing messages I get from people who listen to it and the incredible people I get to speak to and ask nosy questions of. So that will continue. And I'm also attempting to write a pilot script for a fictionalised adaptation of how to fail my memoir. <laughs> And that's been a really interesting process. I'm working with an amazing production company, but 
It's really hard and it's a whole different skill. It's just dialogue. I mean, crazy. Um, but I've enjoyed doing that. I'm having a lot of fun doing that. So I'm sort of doing that on the side and who knows what will come of it. And the reaction to Magpie is great. I mean, it's out in the world now, um, which is, is wonderful. And people seem to be absolutely loving it. Like the quotes, I, I love it too. And are you feeling that good reaction from people? I am actually. Do you know what? If this has been the first novel that I've written where um, before it's been published incredible female authors and lovely Matt Haig. <laughs> he, was the, he was the only man who gave me a quote in advance, but people who I hadn't asked to read it had been sent a proof and had read it and had then tweeted their enthusiasm for it. And they were people that I really respected and loved as writers. So Sarah Collins, who wrote The Confessions of Fanny Langton, Kate Moss, Lisa Tadeo, my absolute soul sister and hero. And, um, their reaction meant the world to me because I was, every author gets so anxious pre-publication. And it was in that time that I was very anxious. And then I thought, if these people who I respect and admire so much have said that they like it, that's enough for me. And so I felt more quietly confident than I have about other books because I had that kind of emotional ballast. And of course, there are going to be people on Amazon who hate it and who give it a one star <laughs> review and say that they feel cheated out of their £14.99 but I know that Lisa today is in my corner, so that's okay. <laughs> Listen, that is brilliant. And I can guarantee anyone listening to this, you will not be disappointed by Magpie. It's fantastic. There's so much in it. And I have to say something, and I hope you don't mind me saying this. I think even if you aren't somebody who's experienced any of the issues that we talked about that are in it, it's it's still brilliant. Like, I don't think you have to have a connection with those subjects in order to enjoy it. It's it's really well told. The characters are fantastic. It's it's very interesting about class as well, I think, especially in Britain. Yes. And there's a, lot of, there's a posh character in it who I absolutely hated, but then redeems herself a little bit, I think, the bit I'm reading now anyway. But, um, no, it's wonderful. Uh, and so well done. Congratulations. And Elizabeth, thank you for coming on and being so so um, true to everything that you've been through and helping people so much with all of those things because it's not easy because you have to relive things to a certain degree talking about them I know you said it helps you but at the same time you know they're deep things that are that like mm. you said take a long time to come to terms with so I really do appreciate everything you do well thank you and ditto I really appreciate everything you do and the amount of work that has gone into this interview and the sensitivity an insight of your questions and I feel really seen and thank you so much for all the lovely things that you say about Magpie that's exactly uh, how I want people to feel about it, it so that's amazing that that's your reaction well you are seen and you are heard and you will be heard when this podcast goes up and <laughs> uh, we'll let you know when that happens and thank you so much Elizabeth Day for being with us thank you and I can't wait to get back to Ireland soon that was the wonderful Elizabeth Day there and her book is called Magpie. I highly recommend it and also recommend listening to her brilliant podcast. That's all we have time for. This podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Contact us on social, on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter using at IT Women's Podcast. We're on email to thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com and we love hearing from you. Until the next time, mind yourselves and thanks very much for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.